0: Maybe you've wondered how you're getting this podcast. Well, support for this program comes from the William G. Pomeroy Foundation, which helps people celebrate their community's history by providing grants for historic signage. It's a great time for canals. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the New York State Barge Canal, and we're in the midst of multi-year bicentennial celebrations for the Erie Canal, Now, with all that excitement, the Pomeroy Foundation has launched a new nationwide signage program to promote cultural tourism and commemorate the history of transportation canals. Markers will be placed at existing or former canal sites all the way across the United States. To apply for a fully funded grant, or to learn more about the Foundation's signage programs, visit wgpfoundation.org. That's wgpfoundation.org.
1: Welcome to a New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Don Wildman, a New Yorker and explorer of all things history. The basis of this podcast is the New York State Museum in the state's capital of Albany. Established in 1836, it is the country's oldest and largest state museum. Within its walls, there are roughly one million cultural objects and more than 16 million scientific specimens.
2: All which help tell the remarkable story of New York and its citizens. The Empire State is a special place, and it can be argued its history is essential when telling the story of the United States of America. We hope to make that case through this podcast, A New York Minute in History. And by my side on this journey, to answer my questions and yours alike, is the historian for the entire state of New York. So, Devin, what is it about New York and New Yorkers that makes what happened within these
1: 54,555 square miles so unique? Well, Don, to answer that, I would paraphrase Columbia University's eminent historian, Kenneth Jackson, and say, but it happened in New York. From the Iroquois Confederacy, through European contact, from the Dutch Fort Orange, through New York's explosion of immigration and diversity, New York's history touches on all the major themes of America's history.
3: Low
4: bridge, everybody down. Low bridge, we must be getting near a town. You can always tell your neighbor, you can always tell your pal. If he's ever navigated on the Erie Canal.
1: On this episode of A New York Minute in History, we'll explore the Empire State's most ambitious engineering feat, the Erie Canal.
2: It transformed upstate New York by compressing time and distance, providing the fuel for an explosion of population, commerce, communication, and social
1: change. But before this artificial river would flow, it was simply an idea touted in anonymous essays written by Jesse Hawley in the early 1800s as the flower merchant spent months in debtor's prison. The writings of the so-called Hercules grabbed the attention of a New York politician named DeWitt Clinton. The idea of a canal spanning the state from Albany to Buffalo, what would become known as Clinton's Ditch, is the most notable impact of his two stints as New York's governor. But setting
2: its future success and enormous impact aside, why was New York
1: chosen as the place to build what was at the time the nation's largest public works project? To answer that, let's turn to my colleague at the New York State Museum, Brad Utter. He's a senior historian and curator who has been focusing on the Erie Canal for the past four years for a major exhibit celebrating the bicentennial of the canal's construction.
5: So New York was the logical place for a canal to reach the Great Lakes. It was the only state that has a connection to the Atlantic Ocean and the Great Lakes. And it's the only complete pass through the mountain chains that get you through to the other side of the Appalachian mountain chain.
1: The promise of economic expansion for New York, and the people who were already doing business in the region, were other contributing factors to determining the waterway's location.
5: So the Mohawk Valley was fairly settled by the time construction began on the Erie Canal. Uh, Farming communities and farmers who were able to make use of the river um, for trade. And further west, not only do you have Native Americans, but you have pockets of settlements of Euro-Americans. Utica was was quite a large place already, and Canadagua, Buffalo, um, and other pockets. Geneva had uh, small settlements, not cities per se, but there were there were certainly people out Euro-Americans out in Western New York, and um, the challenge for them was was trade. So you. A lot of the farmers, certainly in between the, the bigger places, had um, substance farming as opposed to cash crops, just growing what they needed. Um, neighbors were, were very far apart. And those who did try and trade uh, found it easier and, and more economical to trade south through the Susquehanna River Valley, uh, down to Baltimore and Philly, or north to uh, Canada through the Great Lakes Um, And this was a big factor in the ultimate decision to build the Erie Canal because, as I mentioned, it was cheaper to trade with everyone but New York City and Albany.
1: And geopolitical actions involving our young nation also solidified the need for a major trade route from the eastern seaboard to what was then considered America's west.
5: The War of 1812 was actually a, a big factor in choosing the route of the canal because the Warfront in the early stages of, of the War of 1812 between the the British Canadians and the Americans was on uh, the western frontier of New York State and it was actually more expensive to ship a cannon to Buffalo from Albany than it was to manufacture that cannon and so Transportation to our borders for national defense was lacking, and it was uh, extremely hard for the generals to conduct a war. The other factor is, as I mentioned earlier, it was easier for Western New Yorkers to trade with Canada and cheaper. And after the War of 1812, Americans didn't really want to give their business to Canada, and we wanted to promote trade from within, and that helped establish that the canals should actually go to Lake Erie and not Lake Ontario. Uh, Lake Ontario would have been shorter. Uh, it was already an established trade route. And it, it would have been easier. But that factor where, that we want to get straight to American territories and American states helped solidify the route to uh, Lake Erie. But with such a huge undertaking, there had to have been
2: some debate or hang-up Not much gets passed in this state or nation without at least some
5: contention. Very true. Let's deal with the federal side of that coin first. There actually um, were a couple efforts in the federal Congress to have surplus funds set aside for internal improvements, which would be roads and canals. It passed through the Congress, only to be vetoed by Jefferson and then Madison, uh, claiming constitutional grounds, although... New Yorkers would tell you at the time that it was because uh, the presidents did not want uh, New York to get an advantage over Virginia. And really, they're figuring out big government versus little government. What were the roles of the federal government? Not everyone agreed that the federal government should be building roads uh, or canals, um, or, or the state governments for that matter. So for New York to take this bold step and say, yes, we want to Build this canal. We're going to raise the funds to do it. Um, they were making a statement that this was was possible under our form of government. And when it comes to New York
2: State politics and ways of life, upstate and the Big Apple tend to differ.
1: That was as true then as it is today.
5: So part of the political challenge to making the canal happen was that the more populous areas, the Hudson River Valley south, uh, New York City, and Long Island. They were worried that they were going to get taxed to pay for this canal and did not have a trust of the politicians that that wouldn't be the case early on. But they were also concerned about, especially the, the Hudson River Valley farmers were concerned about the increase in competition from agricultural products coming from western New York. So they're concerned about Genesee flour, uh, which was very, Genesee Valley flour was very popular but ex- and expensive. And once the canal makes that possible, then Hudson River Valley, now they've got larger competition to deal with. So, um, And then you've also got the political side of things. DeWitt Clinton was definitely a, it's um, very good politically pushing through the canal and making it happen. And that's why, you know, people call it Clinton's ditch, but he also had his enemies, enemies within his, within his own party and without. And when it came down to the final vote, uh, New York City, all but one voted against it, or abstained or missed the vote um, because they couldn't support Clinton or uh, they didn't they were worried about the taxes. So you know, today we think about the way New York City goes, the state goes and and really, so it's kind of a, you know, in a way, another example of how how the perfect storm comes together because mm. even though New York City, and the legislature voted against it, it still came to be.
2: Now that we've taken care of the financial and political hurdles of making the Erie Canal a reality,
5: what about the monumental task of actually constructing it? Physically, you've got the Cahose Falls, you've got Little Falls. The earlier version, the Western Inland Lock Navigation Company's efforts to harness the Mohawk River proved um, very expensive and inefficient. The great example there is that they knew they had to do a land canal. It had to be land-based. It couldn't be in the river um, whenever possible. So you've got those places in the eastern section, and then in the western section, you've got the Niagara Escarpment. You've got the Montezuma Swamps. In addition to those physical challenges, you've got a labor shortage. If you're out in western New York and, and there isn't a large population, the population that's there doesn't necessarily want to do the work. Um, they're running their farms. One of the things that helped was a financial crisis that um, actually lowered costs for the construction. Uh, I believe it was 1819. And so farmers then joined in more. The other big challenge was we didn't have in America a civil engineering school, there were no trained professional engineers in America at the time, uh, American born. They turned to surveyors, men who helped lay out the route, but they were learning on the job, learning through books and doing what they could.
1: One of the most astonishing feats of the Erie Canal was the use of locks to lift and lower boats to adjust to the waterways changes in elevation. More than 80 were built on the original 363 mile canal.
5: The challenge, uh, early locks, some of them were made of just stone cut stone or wood and so they they learned what worked and what didn't work and even as as they built sections would open and then they'd have to repair them already they're, they're learning as they go so that was was a challenge and and if you imagine say a, a mile long stretch of the canal has to has to have a flow and they've got to engineer a certain drop because you don't want stagnant water it's quite amazing if if over a mile you're dropping maybe an inch and think about they're doing this with shovels and handheld uh, scrapers and pickaxes and you know leveling just you know these surveyors using leveling instruments,
1: it's it's quite amazing. One of the more notable locations of engineering might occurred at a place that would fittingly become known as Lockport.
6: What was really ingenious there is that staircase, the flight of five staircase. Uh, that was a math teacher, uh, Nathan Roberts, who uh, had been recruited and conscripted, I guess, into the uh, into being an Erie Canal engineer. You know, when they were they started building the canal, they did not yet know how they were going to climb the Niagara Escarpment. Uh, so that was well into canal construction before they conceived of that idea and built it. Uh, But what was fascinating there is that those uh, locks were right together. So the uh, lower gates of one lock were also the upper gates of another lock. It was was a, a fascinating marvel.
1: John Callahan is the executive deputy director of the New York State Canal Corporation. He gave us a tour of Lock 2 of the Erie Canal in Waterford, which is near Albany.
6: So what we're doing here in Waterford the, with the Flight of Five, we're, we're um, climbing around the Cohoes Falls, a significant uh, impediment to navigation, uh, as Henry Hudson uh, found out in 1609. Uh, but, but we get around it very easily today. What's interesting is the original Erie Canal used 16 locks through uh, Cahos, uh, referred to as the 16s, and we use five locks to climb the same elevation change today on the uh, current canal system.
2: But back in the early 1800s, not only was the construction a feat of ingenuity, it also
1: had to have been backbreaking work, right? Absolutely. And contractors were well aware of the toll it took on their workers. Jack Kelly, author of Heaven's Ditch, God, Gold, and Murder on the Erie Canal, says that the 1820s became the greatest drinking binge in American history, in part to counteract the demanding and dangerous physical labor, such as farm work, early industry, or digging a very large canal.
7: The canal workers were famous for their drinking. The contractors would agree to give them so much whiskey a day while they were digging. And they had boys that ran up and down the line so they wouldn't even have to put their shovel down. They could have their allotment of whiskey. People drank heavily um, every day. It's hard to say what the effect was, but certainly it had to have some effect on all this uh, turmoil that uh, a lot of people were walking around with a buzz on all the time.
1: That's one of the more interesting uh, things to think about when, when we think about the amount that they were drinking. What was the effect? And especially, as you note know, in your book, Uh, on the laborers uh, who are actually building this canal and beating sun in some cases. And instead of drinking water, they're drinking whiskey out of a barrel.
7: (laughs) The comment one person made was uh, somebody asked, well, how could they uh, dig this very straight, precise canal if they were all drunk? And then somebody else said, well, who would do that kind of work if they weren't drunk? (laughs) Because it really was grueling.
1: So from the first plans to determining a path, clearing land and building the canal, a
2: deadly venture in which about a 1,000 workers died due to accidents and disease.
1: The artificial river was completed in October 1825, linking, for the first time, the waters of the Atlantic Ocean to those of the Great Lakes. (laughs) Connecting the eastern seaboard to what was then considered America's west, led to an explosion of human migration.
2: And completely altered the demographics of upstate New York and the Midwest.
3: Well, the Erie Canal transformed the human geography in very significant ways. I think first of all we need to remember that there were native peoples who were living here who were dispossessed before the canal was built and they were moved farther west. But also the canal made it possible for an enormous migration of people to what we now call the Midwestern states. Um, It also allowed for the settlement of the whole western end of, of New York State that had been largely unsettled by people of European descent beforehand. Some of these people were coming from New England or other places along the eastern seaboard, but many of them over time began to come from European nations as well and settled in the region.
2: Carol Sheriff is the author of The Artificial River, The Erie Canal and the Paradox of Progress, 1817 to
1: 1862. Her work uses as source material an enormous collection of petitions, suggestions, and general correspondence between citizens and New York State government concerning the waterway. This collection is part of the canal papers held by the New York State Archives.
3: When people from the Eastern Seaboard were trying to make their decisions about whether they wanted to seek economic opportunities in the West, and that's what drew them to the West were economic opportunities, they had to weigh the costs of doing that, what they would be leaving behind. They would be leaving behind family, certain comforts of home. When you traveled to to the West you couldn't bring very much with you. You'd be leaving um, relatives, fellow church members, other members of your community. But with the Erie Canal making it possible to get goods, people, ideas into the West very quickly, people were much more willing to do so. Because when they were going to the West, they weren't seeking to escape what they would have seen as civilization. They were hoping to to recreate it. So now the possibility of getting letters from home, having people visit from home, being able to get just the comforts of home, to be able to get the supplies that they needed from home if they were going to be farmers, that they they could buy things maybe that they wanted that were more readily available in the East. But I think it was also sort of emotional. I mean, I talk about how um, I, was, I really noticed how people were talking about the availability of oysters in the interior of the country. And when I saw this in my sources, I was really kind of baffled for, by this. You know, what was this big deal about getting fresh oysters? They could have gotten oysters in the interior of the country before, but they would have been pickled and they would have, they, they, you know, it would have taken weeks and weeks and weeks to get them there. But they would talk about getting fresh oysters. And I suddenly realized what this meant when I came across a collection of letters of a woman living in upstate New York who was writing to her relatives in Scotland. And she was talking about how she was eating fresh seafood. And she said something along the lines of we are 200 miles from the sea. But distance, you know, is reduced to nothing here. She she made it clear that this this possibility to get sort of the comforts of home really made it much more palatable to move, move out to the West.
1: With the ability to travel and move goods uninterrupted day and night, the canal shortened time and distance. Those
2: factors were key to business and profit, and once the waterway was open, it provided opportunities for various entrepreneurs.
5: As Brad Utter of the New York State Museum describes. New York State was predominantly agricultural-based, and when the canal opened and you see uh, large numbers of immigrants going to Ohio and Michigan and shortly, within a few years, their products are coming back. And the grains were cheaper. They were often better than what we could do in New York. And so agriculturally speaking, you've got a transition. Farmers can no longer compete with the grains coming in. It wasn't cost-effective. So you start to see a transition to um, produce, apples, and dairy products, cheese, milk, where if you're closer to a city, you know, you need to provide milk to the city, you need to provide cheese. So New York farmers turn to dairy and and produce as an answer to this competition. Um, The other thing that happens is you get a large number of industrial centers or, or industries that grow because of the canal. All of a sudden you can get large amounts of clay from New Jersey to Syracuse. Syracuse has salt. All of a sudden you can have stoneware and it's easy to ship and you can you can manufacture almost whatever you want. It used to be you had to be next to the source only, but now you can get things iron ore out of the Adirondacks shipping down to um, the Capital District where they have large amounts of molding sand. So then you have a large foundry industry in the Capital District, stoves and all sorts of, of casting products, plows. And the other thing with the transition of the agriculture, it's not to say they weren't growing grains, but it wasn't as cost effective to try and compete. So you get a different level of it. But they also turn to each other in forming agricultural societies, the Agricultural so- Society of New York State, um, and they turn to the sciences of, of agriculture. And So they're trying to figure out ways, what's the best kind of plow? What's the best kind of fertilizer? And this all adds to the industry possibilities along the canal corridor and uh, New York State in general. But with the economic progress came what some considered
2: to be a variety of social ills and dishonest ways of life, as Carol Sheriff explains.
3: So one thing that you would notice when people would write to state officials about the canal, they might talk about um, how they were very glad to have a lock near their farm because that made it possible for them to set up a canal side business which they could, where they could serve boatmen and passengers coming through. But at the same time, they didn't like the fact that workers were congregating there because for many of these middle class, religiously oriented people, the workers who were coming seemed very rough and lewd, licentious, and they thought that this was a bad influence for their children. So they wanted to have the benefits of progress, but they didn't wanna have what they saw as being a moral cost of it. And I think we see that with the internet as well, that people worry about um, what, what their children are going to have access to on the internet. I think there are economic parallels as well. People at the time would talk about you're doing business along the canal with people you don't know. In the previous world, you would have had lots of personal interactions with people you were doing business with, but now you might never meet those people, and they would talk about scams, that people would, you know, t- they would sell their flour, but they would put rocks at the bottom of the barrel, and so that it would seem to be like they were selling more, more flour, but they, they couldn't really trace these people, you know, because, the, because of the sort of impersonality that came along with, with the canal.
1: As Jack Kelly describes, the promise of independence and the chance to strike it rich on the canal appealed to the younger generations.
7: Looking backwards, we're a little bit deceived by because we have this image of uh, the, the men with the mutton chop whiskers and the frock coats, and oh, that was great, great, great grandpa back in the, and an old man. But in fact, as you mentioned, the people that went out along the Erie Canal was not a, it was not an old man's uh, racket out there. There was it was mostly young people out looking for opportunity, looking for something new. Life was pretty rugged. That was the frontier. That was the Wild West in those days. So it attracted young people. For example, Rochester, New York, which was on the canal and really was the first boom town that grew up along the canal. They invented the term boom town to apply to Rochester. Uh, when it was booming, three-quarters of the people that lived there were under 30. So it was really a youth movement. Uh, some people compare it to the 1960s in America. The youth culture was very prominent and um, I think just like young people in any age, they were more open to change, more open to spirituality. They were, they were searching, as young people were in the 60s, searching for something new, something exciting, something that was emotionally gripping.
2: The canal's merging of a young population, new communities, a rapidly changing way of life, and a faster method of communication was fertile ground for reform movements that highlighted the Second Great Awakening.
3: The Erie Canal, we think of it as this great work of progress, and it was, but there were a lot of undersides to, to that progress, and people were concerned about that. They wanted to have the benefits of progress, but they didn't want to have the costs of it. And so I think they often turned to, um, you know, to movements that would allow them to improve society, to perfect themselves in a religious sense, to, to perfect others or bring perfectibility to others. Um, and then I think just the, the canals opening up of, uh, not just a commercial highway, as you said, but also a, a way for ideas to move. There were many reformers who traveled just through the area. There were tracks, religious newspapers, people who would travel on the canal boats, stopping at different towns um, to, to try to, to bring their ideas there that I think, you know, in a very little, literal sense, it allowed for the movement of ideas.
7: And uh, there was a great um, movement back to religion. I think uh, partly because the Constitution had not only guaranteed the freedom to exercise religion, but it had banned the establishment of religion. And the establishment in those days meant taking taxpayer money and paying the clergy and supporting the church in every town. So once that idea of an established church, a government-authorized and sponsored church, was gone, there was a suddenly a big market for religions. Like anybody could start a religion. All you had to do was attract enough followers, they would contribute to you, and you, you would have your religion going. So it's, it opened up um, opportunities for both very sincere people and people that were a little bit more marginal on the margins of charlatanism to start their own religions and to appeal to the Uh, masses of people and see if they could get followers and a lot of people did it and particularly along the Erie Canal where uh, people were moving into the frontier moving away from the established traditions of New England and uh, were more open to the to these new ideas.
1: One of the best known preachers of the time was a man named Charles Finney. He had grown up in Connecticut, attended a Baptist church, and studied to become a licensed minister in the Presbyterian Church. When the
2: Erie Canal opens in 1825, he travels along it holding revivalist rallies that drew thousands.
3: Many of these communities on the western end of the canal, and that's really where there was kind of this hotbed of spiritualism and reform-mindedness in what was called the Burned-Over District, famously named by Charles Finney. Um, He talked about how there had been so many fires of evangelical revivalism that the area was burned over.
1: Finney often preached himself into exhaustion, spreading his message and raising his public profile. Many saw the preacher's teachings as a means to salvation and morality.
2: Leaders in the boomtown of Rochester, witness to drinking and other believed social wrongs, invited Finney to reignite religious fervor in the city.
7: When there was this upsurgence of new religion going on, Finney was sort of the middleman between the really wild frontier versions of Christianity and the very staid and traditional Puritan, Calvinist, New England version. He had the ability to... Excite a lot of emotion to give a vivid impression of heaven, hell and Bible stories and so forth with his preaching and became, you know, developed the techniques of uh, restrained emotion, I would put it that way, that was carried on by evangelists and revivalists uh, all the way down to Billy Graham.
2: Finney would go on to promote the abolition of slavery and equal education rights for women and African Americans.
1: While Finney was a trained preacher, one of the period's most striking religious movements came from a far more unlikely source—in
2: the form of a largely uneducated and, at one time, non-religious farmer named Joseph Smith Jr.
7: The Smith family, uh, like many of the people that settled in Western New York, had come down from um, Vermont. They'd lost their farm in Vermont, which was, a, in those days, was a, a real. A catastrophe for a family if they weren't able to keep up the payments on their farm. And they were poor people. They were they were dirt poor. They come down looking for opportunity along the canal, and they really didn't find it. They uh, worked as day laborers. They were, um, tried to scratch a, a living out of the farm that they then bought on mortgage, which they then lost that farm. So he was of the lower classes. And um, one of the things they they did day labor for other farmers to, to try to make enough money to pay their mortgage. And one of the things that he did was to, uh, he was what was called a scryer. He would look for um, lost objects and particularly lead people on treasure hunts, which was kind of a, it was kind of, had a spiritual dimension. It was kind of a folk activity. Part of it was for fun. Part of it was maybe we, we'll find something. And, uh, He was doing that as a teenager. Uh, In his early 20s, he claimed to have gotten word from a spiritual being that there were gold plates buried near his home in Palmyra, and he went up in this hill, Camorra, and and, uh, dug up the plates, translated the hieroglyphics that he found on those, and from that came the Book of Mormon. He then had some followers already. He got one of his followers, to bankroll the publication of the book. It was 600 pages, 300 different characters in it, stories within stories, mostly focused on how America had been populated, quasi-biblical stories, answers to a lot of questions, spiritual questions people had, but really a remarkable work of imagination. It was just astounding that he wrote it in, in a period of just several months and he claimed he didn't write it he was just he was just being inspired by to translate this from the golden the golden plates but he formed his church around the the book and uh, became the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and a Mormon referred to the character who had um had originally written the golden plates back in the around 400 AD and then took on a spiritual life and sort of guided the church, and they were were always referred to as Mormons or Mormonites.
1: Smith's brand-new belief system would eventually take hold among his followers, and with it came the need to develop structure and community, traits other religions had established long
7: ago. Joseph Smith, in particular, was a genius of uh, that's hard, hard to appreciate his level of genius, not only to write the book, not only to create the whole because he continued to have revelations and to come up with new ideas about the theology and the various religious aspects of Mormonism. But then to create the structures of the church, which are very complicated. There's a lot of overlapping types of authority and bishops and elders and so forth. And then also to create a civil society in the communities where Mormons gathered, his idea was always that the Mormons would gather in one place, and all Mormons would come to this one place. Uh, at that time, it was not Utah. Because Joseph Smith never made it to Utah. They gathered in a what became the second largest city in Illinois, which is called Nauvoo. And that was a totally Mormon city that he created with all the civil structures an army, police, courts, everything. All out of his imagination
1: having attracted thousands of followers smith even intended to run for president of the united states in 1844
2: with attempts to create their own community in illinois and missouri smith and his followers clashed with non-mormons leading at times to armed conflict having angered some mormons and non-mormons by destroying a newspaper printer that criticized smith's influence and practice of polygamy the religious leader was jailed
1: in carthage illinois at age 38 Joseph Smith was killed when a mob stormed the jail on June 27, 1844.
2: Of course, the religion continues today, with most American followers living in Utah, and it remains front and center in popular culture with the Broadway hit Book of Mormon.
7: It's an amazing story that goes on today. Something that was created by a very much an uneducated farm laborer young man in 1830 is still going on today. It's just it's almost incredible.
1: Beyond Smith and Finney and their religious movements, another would take root throughout the Erie Canal Corridor.
2: Made possible by the waterway and the growing power of publicity.
7: A gentleman named William Miller who has predicted the end of the world and whose movement grew up because of his awareness of publicity. He put out handbills. He published his own newspapers. He had several newspapers. He uh bought the largest circus tent in america and he would travel and the the tent itself would attract people who would come to see this gigantic tent and then he would explain his theory of the end of the world and get people to join up his movement so there was an awareness that you, you couldn't just be a preacher and a you know stand up and talk to your congregation you had to get the word out and uh finney was also a, had a sense of that of of uh attracting people and The movement of the revivals was itself a kind of publicity movement. Instead of uh, coming to town and just being a visiting preacher, they would have a revival, and every church would shut down, and the visiting preachers would move from one church to another, and they'd beat the drum to get people to come to the revival. That was just a form of marketing of the religious ideas. So all that took off around this period.
2: And like Mormonism, Miller's belief system, fostered by the ease of communication up and down the Erie Canal, continues in one form today.
7: Miller's movement, which was the the end-of-the-world movement, um, does have a continuation, which is the Seventh-day Adventists. They were loosely associated with the Millerites and have continued some of the ideas of Miller. Both of the religions partook of an idea that was very common back in those days, that we were in the last days, we were, uh, the, the Christ was about to come again, there would be an apocalypse, and this was, we were approaching the end. That was very much a part of Mormonism, it was a part of Miller's, Miller very directly in Miller's uh, view of things, and even somebody like Finney, who was more of a liberal uh, Christian, uh, did believe that we were approaching the end.
1: These various religious movements weren't the only belief systems to sweep across the canal region. One actually involves a murder mystery that remains unsolved today. And the protagonist is a man from Batavia named William Morgan.
7: There was really two parts to his story, which are both quite interesting. One is he was a, had been a Freemason, and he had a falling out with the Freemasons, and partly, I think, for revenge and partly because he thought it would be a good commercial opportunity for him he decided to write a book about uh, the secrets of the Freemasons. This was in 1826, right after the canal was completed, and the Freemasons got wind of the book that he was writing. They warned him not to write it. They tried to burn down the printer that was printing it, and he continued on, and he was then abducted by Freemasons. With the collusion of sheriffs and other of high-toned people who were tended to join the Freemasons. He was taken up to Fort Niagara, which is on the Niagara River where it comes into Lake Ontario, and then he disappeared. And to this day, nobody knows really what happened to him. But there then began the reaction to his abduction, which was that a lot of people in western New York, starting in western New York and then spreading quite a far afield, believed that his uh, abduction and murder was being covered up by Freemasons. And it was true that a lot of the magistrates and the sheriffs and the, the higher government officials were Freemasons. So there was a grain of truth to this. It was then vastly exaggerated to the idea that there was a conspiracy by Freemasons that they were out to take over the government. They were going to install an aristocracy. It developed into Then people started having mass meetings. There was fistfights in the streets between supporters of the Freemasons and the anti-Masons. They then began a political party, the anti-Masonic Party, that was the original third party in America. It was so successful that they, within a few years they ran a candidate for president in 1832. And all predicated on this mystery of what happened to William Morgan. And there were many theories, there were many stories about it. There were, uh, there was a body that washed up in Lake Ontario a year later that it was always mysterious, was it Morgan or wasn't it Morgan? And that was never really determined conclusively. And uh, it kept bubbling along as a conspiracy theory. And it was cited by Richard Hofstadter was a historian later on. He he cited this as an example of what he called the paranoid style of American history, that the people had, had jumped onto this conspiracy theory, and it was somewhat like in his time was the McCarthy era of, of hysteria, finding communists around every corner. So um, it was a remarkably long-lived phenomenon in the sense that Fifty-some years later, they put up a monument in Batavia, which is where Morgan had lived, a huge pillar and statue of Morgan as a martyr to free speech for trying to write this book and then being probably killed for doing so. The
1: Morgan case highlights how the spread of information changed because of the Erie Canal, both through its influence and its intention.
7: America had always had a pretty high level of literacy but uh, if you go back to the time of the Revolutionary War, it was just paper was expensive, uh, printing books was expensive, and they were sort of the, the um, circulated mainly among people that were wealthy. By the 1820s and 30s, the price of newspapers and books and so forth had dropped considerably. So um, they became a vehicle for information. Uh, we think today of... Uh, the various uh, newspapers or websites or whatever you're considering that are politically biased. Newspapers in those days, and through much of American history, newspapers were very biased. And there was a man in Rochester named Thurlow Weed, and he was a uh, newspaper uh, publisher and also a political operator. He was sort of um, the Karl Rove of his day. And he latched on to the anti-Masonic movement and changed the name of his paper to the Anti-Masonic Gazette or whatever name it was, and became a wholehearted proponent of anti-Masonism and helped with the formation of the political party and so forth. There were dozens then of anti-Masonic newspapers in different towns around, first in western New York and then farther afield. So... There was um, information available, and it moved quickly. Uh, Because of the canal, they were able to get word from New York to Buffalo in a matter of days instead of months, as it would have been just a little bit earlier.
2: Talk about new ideas, belief systems, rapid communication, and business expansion. That sounds like the dawn of the Internet.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. As we've dug into the impact of the Erie Canal... The parallels between the World Wide Web and the waterway continue to unveil themselves.
2: So we've spoken to a number of historians who obviously have told us about what happened in the past. I think it's time to look into the present and dig further into those parallels.
4: So I'm Jim Hendler. I'm the director of the Institute for Data Exploration and Applications at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute.
1: Now, before Professor Hendler makes the connection between the Internet and the Erie Canal, let me just interject with this interesting note. RPI in Troy, New York, just north of Albany, is described as the oldest technological university in the English-speaking world. Now remember, there were no civil engineering schools in America when they started building the Erie Canal. Well, this school on the banks of the Hudson started producing the country's first civil engineering degrees in 1835. Coincidence? I think not.
4: So what happened in both cases, you had some visionaries who looked ahead and said, we need to be able to go somewhere we can't go now and we need to get there fast. And then what happened is as that infrastructure started coming in, in the case of the canal, when it was starting to get finished, when people were starting to really start to move the first boats on it, people realized they can do a lot more than was originally envisioned. So I think... The early days of the web, it was going to be something that was actually even e-commerce was being debated. Were we going to be able to buy things on it, hard to believe, nowadays? But it was really seen as just a way to make people across the world able to talk together faster.
2: Like the Erie Canal, the Internet and the World Wide Web created opportunities few
4: imagined when they were being built. So, you know, there's an old saying in science that any time you can make something 10 times faster, you can change it drastically. I think the surprise in the web was just how much it could be used for different things, both positive and negative. So, you know, now most of the money on the web is being made by advertising. Actually, in the early days, it was pornography. But meanwhile, it was creating the e-business that eventually became Amazon. So it was used for many, many different things. And what originally the assumption was it was going to be sort of like television. Very few people, most people would just sit and watch stuff. And then very quickly it became clear that it was it was really exactly about ease of ease of doing stuff. I could buy something faster. I could look at more things. I could go check out things. And then as it became social networks and picture sharing and messaging, it it's just all about faster communication. How soon can I get something to someone in a way that I used to not be able to?
2: And like the second great awakening, social media has created and or fueled movements that likely never would have happened
4: if not for their rapid distribution via the Internet. You know, becoming famous for being famous almost in in a way that I'm told the the canal did. And some of the really interesting things we see on the web, what we also often refer to as a viral video or viral meme, something for no no one's quite sure why they're doing. Well, in the early days, those were entertainment. But then they started becoming more meaningful and and whole movements grow around that. Look at... um, you know, sort of it was first used a lot for getting people out and into physical spaces, but then you have things like Black Lives Matter and things like that, where just the social media impact of being able to see things that had been going on for a long time. And now suddenly not only could you see one, but you could see lots of them from many places. I have a feeling you had that same kind of funly effect now suddenly coming through the canal on either end was a lot of information from a lot of different places at the other side. And that that bringing it together really is something new. And on the web, of course, that's around the whole world. But it can be in your neighborhood. A lot of discussion nowadays, of course, things like fake news and stuff like that. And again, once you got that communication, then people can start putting out their messages, which may not be the same as your messages. Religions can spread in ways they couldn't before. A small group of people who might have lived in different towns along the canal can suddenly now be in touch with each other and form a group, a little cabal, and we see that kind of thing on the web, this this group formation, this ability of things that, that, you know, this is sort of the bad part of the web in some ways and somewhat we're trying to explore how to change is, you know, people can communicate about anything, including things you don't like, and, you know, people can get moved uh, in those days, physically here now more... Um, Uh, character assassination, reputation, and all those kind of things really change very rapidly because of this faster communication.
2: So we've covered how the Erie Canal reshaped upstate New York and the country. But what happened to the canal itself? I mean, people and goods don't travel by barge anymore.
1: Time to turn back to the historians. First up is Brad Utter of the New York State Museum.
5: So as soon as the canal opened completely from Albany to Buffalo. There were already calls for, hey, let's make it bigger. It was an immediate success. The canal was soon choked with boats, boats, long lines at locks. And so as the revenues were coming in, they said, okay, we we can invest in making it larger. In 1836, they started the first enlargement of the canal. So you've got the original, which people refer to it as Clinton's Ditch. And then the enlarged canal starts in 1836 and the enlarged sections as they went. Uh, it was not completed in, or declared complete until 1862 due to political and financial wranglings, if you will. Really, second half of the 19th century, the railroad is becoming a very strong, very strong opponent to the canal. And they started to control prices as they bought up warehouses along the canal system, especially in Buffalo and New York City, and they made it difficult to ship by canal. These are the robber barons of the railroad. Um, However, the one thing that saved the canal, or one of the things that saved the canal, is that people saw the canal as a check on the monopoly that the railroad was gaining. So the railroad had the advantage of they could lower prices during the boating season to match the canal and then jack them up in the winter time to make their difference or to make money. In 1898, uh, Governor Theodore Roosevelt decides we need a commission to look at this. And they decide uh, that not only do we not abandon the canal system, but we enlarge it again. They didn't advocate for a ship canal which is like the St. Lawrence Seaway, an actual ocean vessel-going canal. But they did say a barge canal. And so it was much larger. It was put to a a vote for the New York citizens uh, in 1903, and it passed, largely because of Buffalo and New York City. Mm -hmm. Um, Again, other communities didn't see uh, the benefit of investing in the canal. It only helped a certain amount of uh, communities. You're talking about larger vessels that are going to bypass many of the communities right on the canal, except for the workers. So when it was built in 1905 to 1918, it was actually another engineering marvel. Um, Using techniques, although used in Europe prior, they had to be uniquely adapted to New York State. Canalizing the Mohawk River, using Oneida Lake in different areas, uh, the Genesee River wherever possible, using large bodies of water that already exist, because now they have the technology to harness the river and control it.
7: And one of the uh, changes on the canal was that they were were no longer going to use mules for the power, which had been through most of the uh, 19th century, the mules and sometimes horses would uh, pull the barges along the canal. And the reason for that being that the canal was very subject to erosion and any kind of steam engine that would have a propeller or paddles would create turbulence in the water and erode the canal. They had a lot of problem with leaking anyway, so they just required that all the barges move by means of mules. So in 1905, a man named Thomas Allen wrote this song that was, even at that time, was a look back at the the simpler time in the past when the power was provided by mules and um, that was the the wonderful time in America when you always knew your neighbor and you always knew your pal.
4: I've got an old mule and her name is Sal. Fifteen yells on the Erie Canal. She's a good old worker and a good old pal. Fifteen yells on the Erie Canal. We've hauled some barges in our day, Filled with lumber, coal and hay. And every the way I know from Albany to Bubble Low bridge everybody down Low Bridge, we must be getting near a town. You can always tell your neighbor, you can always tell your pal if he's ever navigated on the Erie Canal.
1: But while the Erie Canal represented technological advancements, even with the Barge Canal in the early twentieth century, it fell victim to that same ambition and drive to move goods and people faster and more efficiently. Pipelines, larger waterways, highways, and air travel played a combined role in the downward spiral of the canal system as a profitable commercial enterprise.
5: You still have grains, uh, eventually a fuel, oil. Those were big products shipped on the canal, and it did fairly well, and peaked in the 1950s. Um, and the St. Lawrence Seaway and the interstate highway system really is what you know took it over. Uh, the railroad was always there as a competitor, but there was, there was enough to go around, so mm-hmm. to speak. You know, it's still today more efficient to ship by canal. It takes less energy. They have bigger, bigger barges. You can carry a larger load. However, um, we like things fast, and trucks and trains are faster.
2: But as we heard earlier in this episode, the Erie Canal remains.
8: Today, the Erie Canal and the New York State Canal system has got a tremendous economic impact in supporting tourism and recreation along all of the canalways and the canalway trail and and really helping more than 230 communities across upstate New York realize the benefit of uh, tourism. a recent study showed that, uh, that the canal system has a $1.5 billion economic impact and that's canal events and tourism, uh, which includes boating, which includes uh, camping, biking, and, and using the Erie Canalway Trail and all of the canal-related events that take place across this sprawling system. Nearly a quarter million New Yorkers receive their drinking water from the canal system many of the farms in the western section rely on uh, water from the canal canal system to irrigate crops Um, many of the uh, larger manufacturers uh, use canal canal water for industrial processing even golf courses uh, along the canal system use water out of the erie canal to keep their greens green
2: Brian Stratton is the director of the New York State Canal Corporation. He gave our team a tour of the agency's operations in Waterford.
8: This is the beginning and the entrance to the Erie Canal when you come up the Hudson River and uh, enter the uh, uh, Erie Canal by turning left, or if you wanted to go straight, you'd enter the Champlain Canal. So in total, this is uh, part of a 524-mile inland navigable waterway that is the New York State Canal system.
1: While commercial traffic on the canal today is rather sparse, between 80,000 and 110,000 recreational vessels use the waterway each year from mid-May to mid-October.
2: As the Canal Corporation's John Callahan explains, today's canal boaters and lock operators experience a voyage through
6: history and engineering genius. The mitered or angled gates you see at most modern uh, canal locks, they're not an invention of New York State. They're not specific uh, to this uh, canal, the 1905-1918 the, um, canal, or even its two predecessors, the Clinton's Ditch Canal, the enlarged canal. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci came up with this design in the late 1490s. Uh, and so this is, uh, this is a, uh, a simple, elegant uh, uh, construct for a navigation lock that's been in use for over 500 years and still uh, working every day. And the principle is that the the gates angled or mitered toward the upstream side will be securely shut and will form a seal uh, when the elevation is different between the upstream side or the elevation of water in the chamber or between the elevation in the chamber or the downstream side. So that difference in elevation pushes, wants to push the gates uh, uh, toward the downstream side, but they won't over travel because they're angled, and that creates a firm seal. Then what you can do is uh, emit water uh, through these valve tunnels uh, into the lock and then out, out of the lock by manipula- manipulating the, um, uh, the gates. Here, lock two. The elevation change is about uh, 32 feet. Uh, that's uh, typical for the locks in the flight. Uh, these five locks in the Waterford flight raise boats 170 feet, just in the first mile and a half. Uh, so that's twice the total lift of the entire Panama Canal in just the first mile and a half of the Erie Canal. So it really puts us in, it puts it into perspective. This canal used more concrete. Uh, at, during its construction in between 1905 and 1918 than the Panama Canal uh, for its construction. It really truly is an engineering marvel. So about 32 feet here at Lock 2 and um, that when, when they fill or, or, or uh, dump uh, Lock 2 here, uh, they'll move about 3 million gallons of water in about 10 minutes. And the operating machinery that you just heard uh, dates back to that era. It's original D.C. equipment produced by General Electric in Schenectady, New York, still in use every day as part of the uh, modern uh, canal system we, we have.
1: And with that, a boat enters the Erie Canal. A waterway
2: that opened up westward travel for immigrants, preachers, business people, and families.
1: Forever altering upstate New York and the United States of America. Thanks for joining us on the New York Minute in History, a podcast about the history of New York and the unique tales of New Yorkers. I'm Devin Lander, the New York State historian. And I'm Don Wildman. Stay tuned to
2: wamcpodcasts.org and the New York State Museum website for more episodes.
1: A New York Minute in History is a production of the New York State Museum... WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and Archivist Media. Support for the project comes from
2: the William G. Pomeroy Foundation. It is also sponsored by a Humanities New York Action Grant with funds from the National Endowment for the Humanities. Any views, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this program do not necessarily represent those of the National
1: Endowment for the Humanities. Thanks to Brian Stratton and John Callahan of the New York State Canal Corporation, Brad Utter of the New York State Museum, Jim Hendler of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, and authors Carol Sheriff and Jack Kelly for all of their help. Until next time, Excelsior.